Hello and welcome to another episode of ProfCast made by WXVU Villanova Radio. I'm your host, Ryan, and today I have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Arapis, who is a professor here at Villanova in the Department of Public Administration. Dr. Arapis, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for the invitation, Ryan, and I'm excited to be here and talk to you about the things that I do. Yeah, thank you again for joining us. So let's get right into it. And I would like to hear about your uh, PhD thesis. So can you tell me what your thesis was uh, and who your uh, you know, advisor for it was? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my thesis, the title was Spend, Tax, and Save, The Impact of Public Enterprises on Local Finances in Georgia. And I began working on my dissertation around 2009, and that was a time, a difficult time for the U.S., The U.S. was going through a major financial crisis caused primarily from the crash of the real estate market and the uh, stock market, known as the Great Recession. So at that time, there was unemployment, had reached high record, uh, uh, high high levels, the highest since the Great Depression. Uh, People were losing homes, foreclosures all over the country, as well as income inequality growing. So it was clear that governments, at all levels, federal, state, cities, they had to step it up and provide support to their communities. Uh, At the same time, finding new revenues was a challenge, right? How can you, for example, increase your taxes or charges and fees at a time where everyone is hurting? So at that time, I asked this major question of how can governments, particularly city governments, find uh, resources without increasing taxes to support the services that they provide their communities. And while I was you know, thinking about this uh, um, uh, question, I, my attention was focused on public-owned enterprises. What do I mean by that? It's simply utilities, electric utilities, water utilities, uh, solid waste uh, management systems, airports, parking authorities, very familiar as well with this kind of like stuff here in the area in Philadelphia. And uh, these utilities, they have the advantage of being monopolies. And that being said, they can also generate generate really high surpluses. And my question then became of those cities who operate their own public-owned enterprises and they generate surpluses, what do they do with the surplus? Um, So then, you know, I started looking particularly in uh, Georgia and local governments in Georgia, and I find out that the cities that they operate their enterprises, they can transfer surpluses from their utilities to support the general administration of the government. They were doing it to support their revenue sources. Uh, In a sense, uh, they were keeping their taxes stable, like property taxes, uh, uh, income taxes or sales taxes stable, they were not increasing them, and they were substituting any kind of like budgetary gaps through surpluses through their utilities. Uh, Interestingly, I was expecting to also find at that period of time that when they were transferring resources from their public enterprises, they would not only support the revenue systems, but also support expenditures and services. This is what uh, one of my major, if you want, hypotheses of my dissertation. But to my surprise, I found out that they do not increase spending. So then what happens? The residual amount of money was then uh, deposited into their fiscal savings or what we call in public finance, rainy day funds. Mm. Uh, That really surprised me. uh, And I think, you know, the explanation of that was that cities 
and states or lower levels of government if you want when there is a major crisis a crisis that is beyond their capacity to deal with they expect not to use necessarily their own resources that they have saved but they expect a bailout from a higher level of government and that was through the case back then we had the stimulus packets provided by the federal administration to state and local government so um I think, you know, what was happening is that cities were simply waiting for the money to come from, you know, the federal and the state government to support their communities. Um, that being said, this created what I call the fiscal illusion. And the, what that simply means, and that was, you know, if you want a byproduct of my research, that uh, meant that uh, the taxpayers had their own idea about the cost of government, the cost of taxes, and how the taxes are being used. Uh, this is, you know, what my dissertation was uh, all about. Um, again, you know, the focus is, the focus was how can cities during tough times find alternative revenues to support their communities. Very interesting. Um, and could you talk a little bit about the methods that you used for your uh, thesis? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm heavily a quantitative researcher. So I love uh, uh, collecting data. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, collecting data and analyze them through statistical software is almost like a video game to me. Mm. Uh, I can stay in front of my computer for hours and completely lose track of time. Uh, so for my research, for my dissertation research and any other, you know, research that I've been doing primarily is uh, collecting data. Then the first uh, step of analysis is going to be my descriptive analysis so that I can familiarize myself with general patterns as well as my readers with general patterns. I infuse and enrich my descriptive analysis with graphs and maps just to make it a little bit more fun. And then based on the literature, I develop uh, typically a regression model, uh, which then through sophisticated regression analysis methods, I attempt to identify relationships between dependent and independent variables. Mm. Uh, I have also used survey. Uh, I, I've also done survey research. And I think, you know, survey research is also very neat because it provides researchers the ability to ask very unique uh, questions and collect data that no one else or not many other people have. Mm. And gives you the, the, the ability to generate very, very uh, closed, if you niche, kind of like research and make an impact to the field. Mm, very interesting. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the uh, data sources that you used for your dissertation and in general, what uh, data sources you tend to use in the public administration field. Yeah, absolutely. So for my dissertation, I collected data out of financial statements of uh, local governments in Georgia. I went back, uh, I believe about five or six years uh, so that I can create a data set that covers not only the Great Recession period, but also the period before the recession. And the data involved the information on revenues, uh, tax sources like property taxes, sales taxes, and so on, intergovernmental revenues uh, such as grants, um, also uh, rainy day funds, fiscal savings, fund balances, all this kind of like stuff. Then looking at spending, uh, general administration, community services, welfare services, uh, spending, as well as uh, debt and capital outlay, uh, money that cities use for infrastructure. In addition to this kind of like financial related, if you want information, I infused my, my data source with demographics, population, 
education level, unemployment rates, uh, race and ethnicity information, just so that I can get a better idea of the communities right, that uh, these cities are trying to serve. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, so could you talk a little bit about your mentor for your dissertation? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I owe a lot to my mentor, as all of us do in life. So my mentor is Dr. Cynthia Bolling. I call her Cindy. And Cindy, uh, she graduated with a PhD in political science from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and started her career at Auburn University, this is my alma mater, in 1998. So when I arrived at uh, Auburn University as a PhD student, that was fall 2007, she was almost there for a decade. And Cindy, she was uh, so generous to offer me an assistancy. At the time, she was the uh, associate director of a huge project uh, called the ASAP American State Administrators Project. Uh, this project is a survey. It's actually the longest state-level survey that uh, uh, is sent to state-level agencies and asks information about budget practices, uh, actors that uh, get involved into the decision-making within state-level agencies, uh, relationships of state-level agencies with the federal government, contracting out, demographics, and so on of, you know, um, uh, directors of state-level agencies. And when I talk about state agencies, that could be the Department of Education, Department of Energy, mm-hmm. that they are within state, and so on. And this survey has been happening since 1964, oh, wow. every four years at the even years of its decade. So it's 64, 68, 74, 78, and so on. At the time of my arrival, uh, we were preparing the new survey that will be for 2008. So I became the associate director for this project. And it would be also the first time that we would release the survey in a digital format as well. So I, uh, under my responsibility, I had to design the survey in its electronic form distribute it, and then collect all the data, analyze data, and so on. And um, so seeing these research, and I think, you know, this is how I also got into my area. So Cindy uh, looked into three broad areas. One was state government administration. So for example, what kind of factors influence administration and decision-making of state agencies? Uh, Looking into political actors, such as governors, or um, uh, into interest groups, right, and involvement of, you know, uh, civic participation within state agencies. Then uh, her second area was on public budgeting, exploring public budgeting behavior of state bureaucrats and what influences their strategy. And then final area that the CE has worked on is on representative bureaucracy, mainly on uh, how gender is represented within the state agencies, how uh, state agencies create space for interest groups to participate into decision-making and policy-making. So um, again, you know, I owe a lot to my mentor, Cindy. She, she really gave me a great opportunity to get involved and to also experience what is the life of a professor, which, mm. <laughs> you know, at that point I really enjoyed. 
Um, so again, thank you, Cindy, for everything you've done. <laughs> and she remains my mentor still. Every time I have uh, mm. a tough question, who I'm going to ask is going to be Cindy. That's, Cindy's that's always really there. That's really cool. That's very cool. So could you talk a little bit about how you arrived at Auburn University? And did, was public administration your goal all along? Or how? what was the path you took to yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Thank you. Uh, so I started my academic journey in Greece. I'm from Greece, and uh, the uh, my undergraduate was a Bachelor of Science in Economics. And I remember from uh, a young age, even from high school, I was a president in my uh, student council at the high school, and I was always drawn into how government takes decisions that mm -hmm. affects the youth, as well as society and you know the general well-being of citizens. When I arrived at my university in Greece and began taking courses in economics, the ones that they mostly excited me were public economics. Mm. Right? Again, how government decisions may affect public life, economies of countries, and so on. So um, at the time of my graduation, uh, that was 2004, Greece was going through a transformation. So Greece was, had just become a member of the EU. Mm. And I was just, you know, looking around and as a young uh, uh, student asking a lot of existential questions <laughs> to myself. And one of the questions that I was asking myself is, well, now we're at the EU, part of the EU, what kind of reform the country needs to be a successful member of the European Union and the European, the European zone? We began, you know, that, that meant that we started to use the euros as a currency. Mm. And one of the things that I realized is that the public sector, which employed about 70% of the Greek population, we, we had like a huge public sector, was comprised by people who did not necessarily have degrees on public economics or public administration. Uh, you could see, for example, directors of uh, really high-level uh, agencies having degrees um, totally unrelated with economics or public administration. They could be, and you know, no offense, but you know, it could be from arts and culture or history, mm -hmm. right, communication, and so on. So that being said, I really real I realized that there is a need for specialization on that particular area. I said to myself, if it is for us to move ahead, right, we need more people that understand decision-making in government. Mm -hmm. So this is when I started looking for public administration, and uh, my option was the U.S. because um, you know I'm quite lucky to have family in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, that was you know a great opportunity for me to move here in the U.S. So I came in the U.S., got my master's in public administration, my MPA, and um, uh, during the time of being a graduate student at Kennesaw State University, a professor offered me an assistantship. I loved doing research for the professor. We did we had an amazing cooperation, and uh, he was the one. Dr. Horn, uh, Christopher Horn, was the one who encouraged me to go for a PhD. Mm. And uh, at that point, I did not have, if you want, plans for continuing my education more than you know getting a master's. Uh, um, at that time, I was thinking of finishing graduating with my master's and going back to Greece and figuring out life in Greece. But when, you know, Dr. Horn told me, Theo, you'd love being a PhD student, you should go for it. This is when I started exploring it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be close to Atlanta and my family. Um, the U.S. was like a very new 
concept for me and <laughs> I needed a little bit of support mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need a little bit of my Greek uh, uh, Greekness around me so I applied in a few universities uh, around you know Georgia Auburn being one of them uh, Auburn gave me a good scholarship to continue and uh, that's how I selected Auburn University very cool and so continuing on the theme of your uh, you know academic and career path how did you arrive at Villanova yeah, absolutely yeah um, so I got into the market in fall 2011, and that was the time that I was still working on my dissertation. Uh, at that time, again, the, the, the country was getting out of the Great Recession. The job market was particularly tough, as far as I remember. Not many job openings, uh, very few on my specialization of public budgeting and finance, believe it or not. So Villanova was one of the universities that they were looking for a finance scholar. And I was really drawn to this opportunity for several reasons. Uh, one of them was I've lived in the South at that time, I think, what was it, like about seven years. And I wanted to explore something in a different area of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Villanova meaning the Northeast uh, was definitely something that uh, it sounded intriguing. Right? A bigger city, Philadelphia was close, more European feel. Uh, New York, D.C., around, you know, the city, mm-hmm. uh, public transportation, trains, you know, all this great stuff that I know from Europe. Mm. Uh, and a bigger Greek community as well, which was important for me. So I applied. I was invited, you know, on campus for my interview. And I remember when I came, I was really impressed by the campus. It was different than what I had seen in the South. For those perhaps who are not familiar, the campuses in the south are all like, you know, orange brick color, mm. all the buildings. But then, you know, when I arrived at Villanova, I see this kind of like more sort of like, you know, um, a name it for the absence of a better term, maybe gothic, mm. <laughs> you yeah, know, kind yeah. of style. Uh, impressed, of course, by our chapel, uh, how beautiful the campus is and, you know, smaller than what I had seen at Auburn or other universities. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the other thing that was like really important for me is that when I arrived to campus, it was extremely clear to me that this is a school that it's centered around students. Mm. Students is the focus. And I can tell you, I remember walking with uh, faculty, faculty were giving me a tour on campus, and every few steps we had to, st- to stop so they can talk to, to their students, mm. catch up, then they would introduce me to the students. And that felt like really, um, really humane, really uh, exciting mm. right, that professors and students are so close in this campus. And this is exactly what I desired as a professor. I wanted to teach and do research along with students, not isolated from them. And as uh, if you look at my research record, for example, you'll see that I have a lot of projects that I have published with my students. Mm-hmm. And that's generally what I love to do. This is the model of, you know, the teacher scholar mm-hmm. that I have in my mind. This is exactly what I had mm-hmm. in my mind is to inspire students. I introduce them to my world, work with them, show them how research is and um, uh, seeing how they develop is something that really makes me happy. Uh, in addition, of course, I knew Villanova. I'm a big sports guy. I love, you know, mm-hmm. sports. Uh, my wife jokes with me. Um, sometimes when I start watching, you know, in the weekend, my Premier League or mm-hmm. basketball, NBAs or college sports, she just can't believe how much I can see it in mm-hmm. front of the TV. Uh, but I knew Villanova. 
because of its, you know, of course, college basketball team. So that was another thing that I'd like to associate myself with. Uh, pride for our academics, but also pride mm-hmm. for our amazing basketball team and, you know, school spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, as I said, of course, you know, I really enjoyed the um, European feel. I remember uh, my now colleagues would take me to restaurants, Bryn Mawr, Wayne, Ardmore, and that really felt like home, like all these mm-hmm. small towns. Uh, it really felt like home to me. Uh, I, 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 another, you know, funny thing is on my first day at school here on my visit, uh, that was I think in February 2012. I met Jay Wright. I just saw oh, Jay cool. Wright outside uh, Connolly Center. Wow! And I, st- I told him hello. I waved his hand, and I thought that was a sign because they told me that uh, you rarely see Jay mm. walking like that on the campus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you know it also snowed. The second day I was here, it was snowing, and uh, you know me being from Greece and south of Greece, I wasn't very familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. snow. I thought that was, you know, so picturesque, so like uh, majestic. Um, and I loved it, you know, so it was easy for me to to, to take the decision mm-hmm. once, you know, Villanova offered me the job, it was easy to say yes and come here and be part of this amazing yeah. you know, university and campus. Very cool, yeah, uh, Villanova during a snowstorm is very nice, very pretty. So here at Villanova, could you talk a little bit about the research that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, my research has been heavily related with what I did in my dissertation. Mm. So it's been, if in a sense, driven by this desire of trying to identify alternative methods that governments can use to support their communities. So, um, and, and, and another reason why I am really interested in this particular theme is because while the Great Recession was affecting the U.S. when I started working on my dissertation. Soon after, in 2010, the crisis hit my country, Greece. And the crisis was a lot bigger in Greece. It took us eight years to get out of this, you know, uh, destructive financial path. Mm-hmm. And when we got out of the crisis, that was in 2018, uh, the scars are still there. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, and this is official statistics from the European Union, at this point, one out of three Greeks live under poverty. Uh, a lot of businesses have closed. Uh, you know, my family, friends, everyone that I knew was affected by this financial crisis uh, that again started in Greece in 2010. And this really, um, if you want, empowered or reinforced my desire to research me- alternative methods of uh, you know finding revenue sources to support communities. So my research has been uh, generally uh, on rainy day funds and ways that uh, budgeting practices for government, cities, school districts, charter schools can be resilient to economic fluctuation. But uh, over time, uh, it has evolved. So for example, given the climate change that we are experiencing and the how severe weather events have become lately, uh, now I'm also looking into how budget processes can evolve to protect communities from natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, within this theme, of course, COVID-19 has played a very important role with my brilliant colleague, Dr. Vaswari Chatterjee. On spring 2021, we did a survey of Pennsylvania and Florida local governments to evaluate the impact of COVID-19 and other type of disasters. And now we are using the data out of this survey to produce other, you know, uh, uh, research uh, projects. 
for example, right now I'm working with uh, Dr. Tsaradzi on a research that uh, we are trying to uh, identify how the impact of COVID-19 and then the preparedness level of uh, local governments in Pennsylvania to face COVID-19 determine their budget choices. Uh, local governments have done a lot of things. They thought very creatively during COVID-19 to provide uh, some, you know, if you want uh, to ease, you know, the difficulties out of COVID-19 to businesses and households, for example, uh, for businesses, they provided space uh, and facilitated the process of businesses taking their operations outside, outdoors. Uh, they um, delayed property tax, let's say, uh, payments. They uh, gave uh, grants or soft loans to businesses and households and so on. So we are trying to figure out how um, COVID-19, the impact of COVID-19, as well as how prepared the preparedness level of local governments may have affected these decisions. Uh, we're also looking into communication strategies, what kind of uh, strategies COVID, uh, uh, local governments used during COVID-19 to inform and protect their communities, uh, as well as another paper that we actually uh, just published looks onto the form of government. Uh, when we talk about governments, uh, typically there is you know two major forms. One could be the strong mayor form, where the mayor oversees everything and has most power. But there is also this other form, the city manager form, where the city manager has more power um, and takes a lot of like the decisions. And we are looking into you know which kind of like form uh, provided better uh, strategies and protected the co or or or, pro or increase the likelihood for cities to take protective actions. And our results provide evidence that the city manager form um, had those cities that they were governed by a manager by by a city manager uh, were actually more active with uh, taking precautionary steps for their communities to protect them out of COVID-19. Very interesting. Um, and, and this research is, is uh, I'm very interesting and I'm sure very relevant to a lot of uh, government officials. So could you talk a little bit about the process of how the, the research goes from academia to government? Absolutely, yeah. This is uh, such, a, such a great, uh, you know, question. And one of the things that um, I'm trying to do in my research is not keep it in theoretical sort of like grounds. Hmm. Uh, as a professor of public administration, it's important to uh, communicate our results and our research and make it relevant for practitioners. Uh, essentially, right, we want to make a change not only into the literature, but also into how things work or ought to work. And of course, Villanova gave us this platform as well. This is another thing that I love about Villanova, right? We are here to ignite change, to work as a community, seek for the truth, right, and love. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have really, if you want, embodied uh, these this, uh, kind of like principles and infused them into my research. So how can you accomplish this? Um, I'm not sure if there is one size fits all, but what seems to work for me is I start first with my own inquiry. Uh, the next step would be develop my research and present it into a conference so that I get some feedback from my colleagues. Mm. Uh, after the conference, I will revise you know, my draft and then submit it to a journal that it's relevant to, to my topic. 
Uh, once it gets published, this is now the time where you have to, if you want, promote your research. Um, so another thing too that I that I really put into my research products is I have a section uh, towards the end of the paper where I speak about the contributions of my research to the general literature field, but also how my research may influence or help facilitate practitioners in their jobs. So I try always to come up with three to five pra uh, uh, um, uh, practitioner-based sort of like suggestions. So once uh, the paper is published, uh, another thing that uh, you know, I think it's very helpful for us to make an impact to um, government is designing a webinar mm. based upon the research and inviting our alumni or the broader uh, government community uh, around Villanova to participate into this webinar. Uh, I can write. I, I also love to write op-eds, mm. uh, opinion editorials, and publish them either in uh, local newspapers. Philadelphia Inquirer is one of the avenues that I typically go, or other professional sort of like associations. Um, so I think this is you know what I try to do. Uh, and it seems to be working Very fairly well, you know, for me so far. Could you give maybe a specific example of a uh, op-ed that you've written or of a uh, government uh, that you've uh, spoken to about mm -hmm. your research? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can give you uh, several examples here. So a few years back, I was uh, a, an education fellow uh, at the Education Policy uh, um, Institute here in, in Pennsylvania, and that is re relevant to my interest in education policy and uh, financial management and mm -hmm. budgeting processes of school districts and charter schools. So during my fellowship, I met a lot of uh, great practitioners, uh, accountants of school districts, uh, chief finance officers, and so on. And I developed eventually uh, some, you know, very good relationships and a good network with uh, practitioners at the mm -hmm. K-12. Um, uh, level. So uh, one of you know the research that I was doing at that point is um, rainy day funds for school districts. So once I published uh, my work, I communicated you know my publication with uh, some of the people that I had met during this fellowship, and uh, I invited some of you know the people that I knew if they wanted to partner with me and write an op-ed. So we write an opinion editorial that was published in the Courier, I believe it was 2017 or 2018, uh, about how the Pennsylvania's uh, law on fiscal savings should change to provide more flexibility in school districts and protect them from any kind of like economic fluctuations. Uh, I co-authored that uh, opinion editorial with uh, one of my contacts uh, from you know the education fellowship uh, uh, experience and. Um, uh, we published it on in the Equator and, and you know like that's that's that was one piece on that. Uh, another you know I think uh, uh, avenue that I've tried uh, and yeah, has been helpful is uh, in addition to academic journals, there is also professional trade journals, and I try to to also publish smaller pieces of my work. Uh, into professional trade journals. Uh, either this is could be like the Association for Government Accountants or um, the uh, ICMA, International City and Council uh, Management Association, and so on. Uh, and again, you have to 
reconfigure your language a little bit, right? You're not talking anymore to academics. Mm-hmm. I find this exciting, uh, changing gears from academic language to more uh, simple language that speaks to practitioners and the community. Uh, that's I think it's a great exercise that has helped me as well to improve my writing as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and most recently, I worked with a student of mine who, Sean Brandon. Sean was um, my research assistant a few years back at the MPA program. And Sean is a brilliant student who is actually working for uh, Harrisburg, uh, for the state government. And uh, his uh, area of expertise is budgeting for K-12. And together we started working on uh, budgeting practices for charter schools. Uh, We published our work at the American, uh, at the uh, ARPA. Uh, This is the uh, very top tier journal in my field um american review of public administration and uh the research that we published on charter schools got a lot of attention that gave us the opportunity to speak to the staff of uh the governor uh, mm, a few oh, years back cool. uh, eric haggerty is uh, uh the person we spoke to about our research and our findings and what our recommendations are so again you know uh, i think one of the things that i'm trying to say is that there's not one way <laughs> of mm-hmm. making an impact. Right. Uh, thankfully, we live in an era where there is, you know, digital information is everywhere mm-hmm. and a lot of avenues to make impact. I think uh, what is most important is just being excited about the things that you do. Once you're excited and uh, committed to your work, then you're going to really push it to try and find ways of how to make it more accessible or make an impact, um, you know, besides academia. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your experience teaching. So you, you mentioned that uh, the student-teacher uh, relationship is one of your favorite parts about being a professor. So could you talk about what are the types of classes that you teach? Mm-hmm, absolutely, yeah. So uh, at Villanova, particularly, I'm teaching courses on financial management, public budgeting, and statistics. And uh, these courses are technical, uh, I'd say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Sounds scary, uh, perhaps on titles, but I can assure you, as you know as well, mm-hmm. that uh, you know we have a lot of fun. Students love them, and they provide students not only with theoretical knowledge but practical as well. And I think this is this is one of the advantages of American education. Uh, having known also education outside the U.S. and Greece in particular, I can tell you that in Greece we uh, put a lot of attention in theory, and mm-hmm. students learn a lot, a lot of you know theory but not so much on skills. Uh, mm. This is what I love about the American education, that uh, teaching is so balanced mm. between theory and skills. And it's important for students to get out of classes uh, with particular skills that they can immediately apply to the job that they're going to get. So that being said, my courses on financial management, budgeting, and statistics provide me the platform to introduce my research. Um, Quite often, the topics that I choose to do research al- align very well with my syllabus. Uh, when I started to teach, and I didn't have much research going on at that time, one of the things, one of the goals that I had was like, okay, Theo, um, let's do publications on for the topics of each week mm. and add them into the syllabus. And I can tell you I'm proud for that uh, pretty much now the students see <laughs> a lot of my work right. uh, and hopefully they enjoy it as well I'm not that annoying to them <laughs> but I think you know this is this is an important uh, way of uh, gaining trust 
from your students because they see uh, material and works that their professor has done, right? They um, see that they are being taught by an expert, right? Um, and uh, also most importantly, right, the research, my research, I use it not only to inform or enrich my class, but also to inspire my students. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to introduce them into my world of financial management. I think it's not so important for students to, to, to uh, develop an interest into how government takes financial decisions that eventually affect the life of everyone. Um, so yeah, so this is how I use my research. Mm -hmm. I truly enjoy, again, and having the flexibility of adding these works into my classes. Mm -hmm. It's uh, very inspiring for me and uh, motivating to continue mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah, so in the class that I took with you, uh, I think it was Intro to Public Administration or something? Research methods. Research methods, yeah. That was one of the first really uh, in-depth uh, classes I took on quantitative methods. I had mostly operated in the term of uh, the qualitative space. So could you talk a little bit about some of the skills that you try to develop in quantitative methods? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, Ryan, you did a fantastic job. Thank you. <laughs> and Ryan also, uh, again, you know, one of the things that I love is that you challenge yourself and you use your project in the class and you got your publication at Veritas. Mm. So everyone who listens to this podcast, you'll need to read Ryan's <laughs> yes, work. Yeah. The title was, the theme was on transportation, but what was the title? Uh, it was, uh, what was it? It was um, public or spatial mismatch. Special yeah. Mismatch. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Special mismatch on transportation. Through yeah, it was the public, the relationship between uh, rates of uh, employment and public transportation there you go yeah. there you go fantastic yeah so um so so when i when i designed the co my courses right because i again as i said earlier i think it's extremely important for students to develop skills mm -hmm. right how do i design the course i collect and this is an, an, an uh, exercise that i do every couple of years i go into places where they advertise jobs relevant to public administration and I collect job postings for, you know, for example, financial analysts or budget analysts or entry level or, you know, higher level like directors and so on. Data analysis, since I'm also uh, teaching a lot of statistical courses. And I collect these job postings and I look into these job postings. What are the requirements that actual employers are looking from, you know, applicants? Mm. And uh, I try to infuse some of these requirements into my courses. Mm. So what are the things that I see are required these days? Being able to work in a team. Uh, so, you know, within financial management or data analysis space, you typically don't do the work alone. You work with a team. So my courses on the graduate level, particularly, they are uh, using a lot of like group projects and group work. Uh, knowledge of uh, Excel, presentations, you know, communication skills, presentation skills. So there's a lot of like Excel work, uh, pretty much any kind of like data collection happens through Excel. Then uh, employers ask a lot of like visualization of data. So students are getting exposed into creating graphs, mm -hmm. mapping, right? And then uh, analysis, statistical analysis. Um, that typically the software that I use is called Stada. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a software that you know quite often, it's quite common and quite often asked from employers, either Stada or SAS, 
are the ones, or are, you know, are the ones that, you know, most typically see. So again, you know, this is the way I try to figure out what kind of skills my students need, right? And try to always remain up to date every few years, take a look at job postings and how they change. And uh, uh, that's the way I have been involved in my courses over the past 10 years. Um, it's particularly right for financial management. Uh, students learn about trend analysis, uh, financial condition testing, benchmarking analysis, mm. and of course, when it comes into developing a budget, right, big part of developing a budget is forecasting. So students are exposed to different methods of uh, forecasting, mm. revenues, expenditures, and so on. Um, and then the same thing, of course, for statistics, right? Uh, we start with skills such as regression, uh, descriptive statistics, and then we move on to regression analysis and so on. Mm. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, takeaways I got was how you can look at a set of data and then you can draw from it a narrative. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the process in which you are you take all these numbers, which under, are maybe understandable to you, but then you put them in such a way that they make a compelling argument? Absolutely, yes. And uh, do, doing that, I mean, you know, it's not you're not going to learn that right away. Uh, it requires experience. The more you do it, the more you work with data, and the more you analyze them, the more you write about data, I think, you know, you, you only get better. So I don't expect from my students right away to be able to create this kind of like Nobel Prize, <laughs> you know, research <laughs> yeah, papers. Yeah. Uh, sometimes us in academia and uh, us who teach our research, we joke that uh, our students are not gonna write, you know, like novels. Right. But that doesn't mean that the work has to be boring, right? So again, I think, you know, it's uh, a matter of like uh, getting the students excited. Uh, saw them examples of your own work and, s and, and kind of like saw them how you go about things. Uh, encourage them to develop their own method and then staying very close to them and helping them out to analyze data. So as you can see in my courses, I get heavily involved with my students. Uh, so for example, uh, before let's say submitting a major part of their assignment of the research project. Uh, I'm gonna develop a workshop in the class where the students are gonna come in with their data mm. uh, and work along me into developing their analyses mm -hmm. uh, and helping them out by seeing patterns and so on. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's the, 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 the method of thing, the process that I've been following, right? Uh, work along the students and help them out to find the story. Uh, again, it's it's not something that it's going to happen, you know, at, at the very beginning of, you know, someone doing research. Mm -hmm. uh, it requires repetition. And um, the more you write, the more you analyze, right. the better you get. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now could you talk a little bit about what research projects you see on the horizon for you? Are there any questions that you feel that you want to answer or are you currently involved in any research projects? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I always try to like develop a research. Uh, always uh, the rule, the rule that I had from a mentor, Cindy was, uh, that to be productive, you always need to have one p research paper completed and submitted to a journal, uh, another one as a draft and a third one always in your head mm. trying to start. And that is because uh, writing a research uh, might take longer than what you expect. Uh, sometimes life 
gets into the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, for example, I have a baby boy mm-hmm. and my life is all over the place. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to train him to collect data, <laughs> but uh, we're not there yet. Hopefully, uh, in a little bit, in a, in, in, a few in, in a few in a few months, I yeah. think he's gonna he's gonna be an expert as well. Uh, or you know, sometimes you develop your project, but then you might find out in the process that, that collecting data is more time. Uh, it requires more time than you expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, so that is to say that you can just put all your faith in just one research project. You need to have like several ongoing projects going mm-hmm. and that's the way you're going to remain productive. So right now, um, one of the projects that uh, it's almost done uh, with my colleague, Dr. Chatterjee, uh, is uh, we're looking into communication strategies that local governments in Florida and Pennsylvania used about uh, protecting their communities and informing their communities about COVID-19. So for example, was that through social media or town hall meetings or, you know, newspapers or local TV stations and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another project that right now I have done the introduction and moving now into my literature review mm. is on budget strategies that uh, local governments use during COVID-19. And moving forward now, other ideas involve uh, capital spending. Mm. Uh, the state and local governments receive a lot of help out of the federal government. So there is what we call uh, hazard mitigation grants. And uh, the hazard mitigation grants are supposed to be used by state and local governments in order to improve their infrastructure against natural disasters. And our hypothesis, uh, the hypothesis here is that those governments who have received, who are recipients of federal hazard mitigation grants, they are using the money accordingly to improve their preparedness level against natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doing so, probably, or you know, this is what we, this is what I expect to see, is that doing so will have an impact on how much debt those governments uh, accumulate. Mm. So the hypothesis is that more hazard mitigation grants, less debt. And this is now, you know, a future idea that I'm trying to, I guess, develop next year. Uh, Along that, I'm also working uh, on a research project about school districts. Uh, During COVID-19, it was clear that uh, school districts uh, had a little bit of trouble with forecasting Mm. their, you know, revenues, their spending, uh, things were shifting, operations were shifting from in-person, they had to make changes to go online. Uh, Now we are facing issues with uh, teachers not coming back. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is huge gaps across the U.S. on teachers or other stuff and so on. We have also inflation that increases the cost of public transportation, uh, food, and everything else within you know uh, the school district systems. Uh, that being said, uh, I think it's important that uh, my research that I'm you know developing looks into how we can improve forecasting accuracy. Mm. Uh, how can you know our budget forecast become more accurate of the reality? And I'm trying to develop, you know, a model where I'm going to identify those particular factors that may impede, right, make it harder, if you want, for school districts to have uh, accurate Mm -hmm. budgets. 
And identifying those particular factors, of, of course, can be helpful for practitioners because then, you know, we can be a little bit more careful or more cautious about how we budget mm -hmm. when, you know, these factors are present. Definitely, like, highly relevant to a lot of the challenges school districts are facing. So you mentioned a few times that you've collaborated with Dr. Charoji a lot. Could you talk a little bit about the value of collaboration in research? Absolutely, yes. I mean, um, I've, I've, I've done a lot of collaborations. Most of the times it's with my students. Uh, part of it, again, is because I love seeing my students evolve and develop right, uh, their research skills. And the other thing is that also, as I said earlier, I like to inspire them. And, you know, I can tell you that uh, a lot of students, after working with me, they either developed interest in local government, others wanted to be professors of public finance, or they went for the PhD and so on. This, like, gives me such, such, such a great pleasure and motivation to continue to do what I'm doing. Uh, now I'm working with my uh, colleague, Dr. Chatterjee. She uh, is a scholar of emergency management. I am a scholar of public finance, so there is, you know, a lot of opportunity for mm. collaboration. And I think this is what collaboration provides. Uh, definitely, it increases your productivity <laughs> by having, you know, more people to write and collect data and analyze and so on. But at the same time, it also provides the space, especially when you go outside your field. Right? It provides sort of like the space for creativity. Uh, co collaborating, for example, with Dr. Tsarerzi, who comes from a totally different field from mine, we can, you know put our passions together and see how uh, our work can, if you want, affect a broader mm. community of practitioners. Mm. So now right. our work doesn't speak only to public finance uh, practitioners or only to emergency managers. Right? It speaks to a broader community that uh, involves more public administrators and so on. I think this is you know, the most fun part with collaboration. Uh, you also learn a lot of things from each other. Right? I learn quite a bit from my students, as well as from you know my colleagues, other targets, or other people who I have collaborated with. And I hope that they also learn mm. a, a thing or two from me as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I learned a lot in uh, the class that I took. We took together. Thank I took you. with you. So I think that's a good place to leave it, Dr. Rapis. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Ryan, for the opportunity to speak about my research and, you know, Villanova. Again, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity and I love being here. So go Cats. Yeah, go Cats. Uh, listen to us next time on ProfCast. Thank you for listening.